We're in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to cover a section, verses 12 through 26, <coughs> that is all about leadership. And so let's, let's get into it. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would guide us and direct us through this, through this, this passage. Um, and I want to thank you for um, really leading me through it this last week. I've just been really blessed in this passage. I just feel really bolstered and um, touched by you and touched by your heart. Thank you for that. Thank you for leading me through it. Thank you for showing me some really beautiful things. Thank you for bringing things to my heart and my mind. Friends here, God, that you would reveal to their hearts and their minds special things from you, that this wouldn't be an academic exercise or an intellectual exercise only, but that this would touch every part of who we are, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our wills, our spirits, every part of the essence of who we are. I pray that you would touch us with this and that we would know that you are speaking to us personally. Need you. Lord, I come to you clothed in your righteousness. I claim the righteousness of Christ as my own. I don't come um, with my own stuff. I dare not. So Lord, I, I put on the breastplate of righteousness. You guard my heart with it. I put on the helmet of salvation. You guard my mind. Above all, I put up the shield of faith of trust, that I can trust you in all things. And I pray this for all of my friends here, the sword of the spirit, the shoes of the gospel of peace. We just, uh, the robes of righteousness, we just get dressed and ready for the day now. Lord, ready for the, for the battle. Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 2, I'll read verse 20, uh, 12 through 26. Now the sons of Eli, I love this first line, were worthless men. <laughs> that's, that's the Bible's description. They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And all that the fork brought up out, the priest would take for himself. And this is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Verse 15. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw and if the man said to him, well, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. You hear that there, Bobo? Oh, is it my phone? Someone's calling me. Oh, Amber Alert. Lord, I pray for that. Um, let me put this, let's, let's put this on church mode. Um, and if the man said, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make, make it for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she, when she went up with her husband to offer yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked for the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all of these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, who will mediate for him? But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was... Here's a chilling verse, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. 
Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Okay, <coughs> excuse me. We've been going through the book of First and Second Samuel on Sunday mornings. And I'll just tell you up front, this, this today begins one of the more major motifs of the book, and that is the idea of leadership, and uh, specifically today, the idea of corrupt leadership. Now, obviously, leadership's an important subject and a really touchy subject. It has a lot of things that go with it that make people very suspicious, um, but it's important for any group or society or organization or church. It's an extremely important thing to have in place. Um, <clears throat> what are some things, while I cough and clear my throat, what are some things you th- guys think about when it comes to good leadership? Think of a good leader. What do you think? <clears throat> Humble? Okay. Integrity. Integrity? What does that mean? That's a big word. What does that mean? Integrity? Yeah. Say what you mean. Mean what you say and be a man of your word. Okay. Or a woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Integrity. So be uh, uh, on the inside who you are on the outside. <clears throat> That's good. Anybody else? Value people. Value people. Yeah, right. I think um, use your power to serve and help people rather than using your power to take. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Anyone else? Not getting special treatment. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, resisting the temptation of, of the perks, those types of things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I knew someone, I knew a reluctant leader once that said, I love the idea of leadership if it just wasn't for all the people. <laughs> In other words, I can't handle it. You, you got to love the people. Absolutely. Well, although we have leadership in the West, in the modern culture, the idea here is you, you need to know in our culture is tied to great suspicion because of stories a lot like this, or what we're reading here. There have been so many, too many stories, especially even recently, of corrupt leadership, especially corrupt leadership within, within the Christian church. And because of this, we're literally taught to suspect, to, to have an attitude of suspect when it comes to all authority because we... Uh, because of the way we in the West view the history of leadership. In fact, um, truly, it's taught in, in, in our academia, in our academic institutions. Social history itself is seen to, uh, to a certain extent in the modern West as the story or the unbroken chain of people in power, like Hophni and Phineas here, taking advantage and manipulating people that they're leading for their own benefit. That's the way we're taught to look at history, really. Uh, that's the way, um, if, you, if you go to University of Washington's website, or if you go to even a higher institution, a really well-known institution's website, and go to their history department. <clears throat> I know, because I just did this actually a few weeks ago. Um, you will find that they will skip entire important swaths of history focusing on major turns or revolutions because of corruption that have happened um, that have happened up into the, modern, into the modern world. That is the main narrative that's being told, that basically like a snake that regularly sheds its skin, leadership, when the scales tip to being so corrupt, it will shed itself through revolution. And when, when, people, uh, when, pe- when leadership structures begin to deprive the people they're leading from their most basic needs like food or water or, um, or uh, private property or, or psychological needs, like a certain sense of self and those types of things, according to the culture. At that point, the people will rise up and there will need to be a turn in leadership. So uh, leadership is seen as a succession of corruption. And so built into our culture, because we view history that way, <clears throat> In the very milieu in which you and I breathe comes a suspicion of all authority and all leadership. We've learned to suspect people in charge and people with power. We've learned to be critical and, and untrusting. And this, again, this might not be something, this is what sociologists call the social imaginary. What that means is it's not a worldview. It's not something that you can actually articulate, but it's something that you know is true and you'll, find, you'll defend it. It's something that just is like a, you're like a fish in water. Do you, does a fish know that there's water? 
I don't know, they just are, that's just what they're in, it's what they're swimming in. We're swimming in ideas here in the West, and one of those ideas that catch us without us even knowing it, without us even understanding it, ideas that we take as givens without even learning to question them, is one is we look sideways at leadership. It's this weird, interesting thing. It's important, and yet it's suspect at the same time. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm so sorry in advance for all the clearing of my throat that I'm going to be doing. What's that? Yeah, I, could, I would love some water. That'd be awesome. Thank you. Well, what is God's attitude about corruption and leadership? We're going to learn it here. <clears throat> what are some similarities that he sees and that our culture sees? Um, where does corruption come from? How does God purge it out? We're starting, Samuel starts the narrative in an extremely corrupt time in the, in the nation of Israel. Well, this passage deals with all of that. And to help my brain stay focused, I've, I've divided it into three points. One, we're going to learn in this passage that God sees and cares about corruption. That's really important for us to know as Christians. God sees it and he cares about it. It's in, in fact, I think more than what we will know. That's really an embarrassing under, you know, understatement. Secondly, <clears throat> God, gives a, give, God goes deeper than what the culture gives. He gives us a deeper look at where corruption comes from. The Bible gives a much more nuanced, complex, deeper view and really scarier view. Thank you so much. Scarier view of where corruption comes from. That's our second point. We'll get into that. And thirdly, this passage is going to show how he overthrows corruption in Samuel's culture, what he's doing there, and then ultimately how he will throw off corruption once and for all. Isn't that good news? Someday there will be no evil. There will be no corruption. We are heading towards a time where a perfect ruler Jesus will rule and will come. That's what we as Christians hope for. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. We're going to get into the nuts and bolts in that and, and, and see how that, and that works. First of all, I want you to know God cares, God sees about corruption, and God sees corruption, and he's going to do something about it. Let's look at the corruption that's going on here, because at first glance, it may not seem like quite, quite a big deal. Um, Let's pick it up in verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. So here we go. The custom of the priests... With the people that, with the people, in other words, this was the culture, was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and that the fork brought up, whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servants would come. And say to the man who is sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from, from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, well, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you want, because that's the fat belonged to the Lord, as we're going to see. He would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I'm going to take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great. In the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And then skip over to verse 22, and you'll see a deeper level here. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing. Okay, this is, in other words, this is now becoming common knowledge. That's how brazen this is. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent, at the entrance in the tent of meeting. This is eerily current in our culture right now if you're following any of the mega church scandals that are going on currently <clears throat> it's um it's like right out of right out of first samuel um so the first thing that we're going to deal with here is what the text calls contempt for the offering of the lord why was this such a big deal they were taking more than what was allotted to them and at the surface this was the priest robbing God and the people by taking most of the offering that they were bringing for themselves. They were thinking primarily only about themselves and not about God or others. The, and here's, you need to understand why this is a big deal. The entire plot, and I mean this um, emphatically, the entire plot of the Old Testament is, could be summed up with the question, how can people infected with sin 
that is a proclivity to do what is selfish and wrong towards God and others, how can that kind of a people, that's the children of Israel, right? If you, if, if you remember they're wandering through the wilderness, if you're remembering all that they're going through, if you've come through the book of Judges, if you go back and read the crazy things that Israel's doing in the book of Judges, all throughout this, through, from Exodus forward, the plot is how can a people like that dwell with a holy God? That is the, if you want to know the plot of the Old Testament, and really the Bible, but the Old Testament uh, in one sentence is God making a way for these people to dwell with him again. That is what it's about. How does that happen? How is one cleansed and made holy to be acceptable and make a movement instead of going away from God to change directions and make a movement back to Eden, back into the presence of God? How does that happen? And the, the long, long, arduous answer is the book of Leviticus. Have you ever read the book of Leviticus? Well, if you haven't, you're in for a real treat. <laughs> it is, I mean, it is a test of your mental endurance because it gets into the minutia of what's required to make the nation of Israel ceremonially clean enough to make a movement back into the presence of God, back to Eden. The Bible deals with movements east and west, and you know where that comes from. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of Eden, out of God's presence to go east. When Cain killed Abel, he was cast further east. So there's this movement east to west. East, if you would, meaning away from God. West, meaning back into the presence of God. And that really, that movement dictates the, the plot of the Old Testament. God making a way for his people to come back. The problem is they're sinful, they're corrupt. How, does he, how do we get back into his presence? And the idea is for this sacrificial system was a way forward, a way to dwell with God again, a way to have absolution for your sins to the point where you could, through vicarious sacrifice, an innocent animal, an innocent being was punished for your sins vicariously for you so that you could go into the presence of God, that you could celebrate with God. If you look at um, the sacrifices in Leviticus, uh, if you can muscle your way through it, it's really quite beautiful because at the end of these weekly sacrifices, and then of course Yom Kippur, that's Exodus uh, 16, the yearly sacrifice, was a feast. In the, and it even says right there in the, in the text, you will feast... At the end of this whole thing, after you've made your sacrifice and the holy smoke goes up before God, the idea is that your um, sacrifice that's vicariously you goes before the presence of God, one that's also you, a scapegoat that's, casted, that's cast out of the presence, out of the camp, right? And then another sacrifice that would go into the presence of God through its blood, through its sacrifice, it would change substance as it was burnt into smoke that would rise up into the presence of God on your behalf. The idea was, I'm sending a vicarious substitute for me into the presence of God, and at the end of that whole thing, the command was, you and all of Israel and your family will feast and eat with the Lord. The, at the end of it, we're with God. It's a, it's a, it's a picture of heaven. In Revelation, what do we, what's the greatest picture of heaven? It's a big wedding feast where we're all there with the Lord celebrating that we made it, we did it, we're with God, we're back into his presence. This, the Levitical sacrificial system simulated that to some degree on a weekly and then yearly basis. It was very important. The sacrificial system was your way of making it right of coming before God, of getting rid of your sins. It was very important. And these creeps, calling themselves priests, were preying off of that spiritual hunger because we continually is being made in the Old Testament. You know, sin, you know, it's in our nature. A person would make a sacrifice and then next week would go by and someone would... Someone's donkey would cut you off in traffic and you'd cuss or you'd get angry and then you had to make sacrifice again. It guaranteed that the sacrificial system would always stay busy. 
that the market, if you would, would always be hopping. And Hophni and Phinehas devised this scheme to prey off of the spiritual sensitivities of the children of Israel that are wanting to get their lives right with God. They use that momentum that's within them, that's within every human, for their own gratification. This is why this sin is so great. They're running interference between God and the people. This system that was supposed to make it accessible, they're making it harder for people to get into the presence of God. It has a lot of reminiscence of Jesus, doesn't it, when he made that whip and said, you know, have you not heard? You're selling all this stuff. My house is to be a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of thieves. It's got that flavor to it here in, the, in Samuel. The same type of the same type of thing. The idea is that people are coming to offer their best before the Lord. This is the idea with the fat. Let me read this to you. Um, Well, so the way it was supposed to be was you would come and you would offer a sacrifice, but you couldn't do that without help. You couldn't, it wasn't a self-serve program. You couldn't come with whatever goat you chose and do it however you wanted and just kind of a personal thing between you and God. No, 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 no. It was very specific. Again, the book of Leviticus. You needed a priest, a mediator, who was an expert in Levitical law to make sure you did it just right. That was the idea. So God made this office of a priest who would mediate between your sacrifice, your offering, and between God. And he would make sure your, the job was to make sure your offering was just right and perfect so that you could have access before, to God, that he could bridge the gap type of an idea. And because this work was so hands-on and so arduous, and it, you know, it's constant sacrificing, constantly going on. It was a hard job for priests to do, and God built into the system a way that priests could be compensated. But it was very specific. It wasn't a blank check. Uh, let me read to you Leviticus chapter 7, and you'll get the idea. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hand shall bring the, Lord, uh, the Lord's food offering. He shall bring the fat with the breast. And the, and the breast uh, may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar first. In other words, the fat, as any barbecue expert knows, is the best part. You know, you know when you smell the barbecue and it just makes every molecule in your body scream for joy when you smell that, that thing? You know, what you're smelling is the fat burning. That's what Israel smelt like in the temple. It was this beautiful aroma. That's what the Bible says. It was a pleasing aroma to God. He was smelling that. That was the fatty part. It was considered the good part. And that went first. It was given to God because of that. Um, But then the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. That would be the priest doing the work. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution for the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. Notice this is very specific. It's not a blank check. You have the breast, you have the right thigh as a portion. It's very that way. Um, So this was a way to, one, honor God with the best. That's the idea of an offering. And it's congruent with your view of God. God is the highest. He's the greatest. He's the, he's the, he is the most perfect, holy, um, royal being of all of eternity. Therefore, he deserves my best lamb. The idea was you would go through your flock and you would find your most prized, your best offering. And you would offer that to God because that's what he was worth. That's what he was worthy. So that went first. So this was a way of one, honoring God for who he was. And secondly, it was a way that the priests were provided for while they were doing all this work. They could eat part of the offering um, as part of the, but Eli, they kind of invented and patented, contracted this three-pronged like trident that would just launch in there and whatever pulled out was pulled out would be given to them later on we find we we find that they were very well off they were very in that culture the bigger you were the more 
fat you had on you. Truly, that culture looked at you as the more blessed you were. God was blessing you. So it contributed to this um, idea of God's blessing of social standing, and yet they're, they're, they're stealing from God. Not only that, but they demanded the fat as well. As we just read in Leviticus and other places, a lot of other places, it's clear that the fat belonged to God. But again, people would come saying, I want to give my best to God. And they would say, no, it's actually about me. The best goes to me. They were leeching off of people's spiritual needs like parasites. Their attitude as leaders was to use their power and their influence, like we talked about, to get from people rather than to give to people. And this comes through all the more when you consider that they were also using, they were using women that were there to serve. You know, there's, there's no indication in the text that this is consensual. In fact, we can find in Exodus and Leviticus that women would go and serve in the temple, serve in the tabernacle, just as their service to God. And yet Hophni and Phinehas were taking advantage of their desire to, 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 serve, to serve God. Now, this behavior was so rampant, did you notice, that it became commonplace. Verse 22, that Eli was old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing. In other words, this is chronic. This has now become cultural. It's what's, it's what's going on. And he, he says all the people are spreading this abroad. In other words, Hophni and Phinehas are no longer trying to keep this a secret. They just don't care. They just don't care. This kind of corruption from leaders, I want you to know, is a big theme in the Bible, to say the least. To say that it's almost, I struggled over how to say, instead of just saying, God cares. And that just doesn't even, when you look at the biblical data, it is much, much more than that, as I hope to, as I hope I can show you. But let me just give you a few um, starters here. Jeremiah 21, 11 through 12, this is God saying, and to the house of the king of Judah, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Let me give you another one. I could go on and on and on. There's so many verses in the Old Testament, you guys. In fact, um, I actually, a few years ago, I decided to read through the Old Testament looking for verses that had to do with God caring about injustice, the poor, the oppressed. And I, know, I didn't count, but I noted, I think I could not, get, I could not turn the page more than twice without getting, getting to some verse about God caring about um, what scholars call the vulnerable quartet. You know who those are in the Old Testament? The vulnerable quartet are the widows, the orphans, the immigrant, and the poor. Those are who is on God's heart. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. It's over and over and over and over again. This is Jeremiah 22. It says, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. That's Sadaqah Mishpat in the, in the Hebrew, which are two words that almost always go together. They, they're a pair of words that form one word. Sadaqah Mishpat, it's the Bible's version of justice. Um, it's righteousness and justice and deliver from the hand of the oppressor. Um, if you get into Ezekiel tells us that Sadakah Mishpat is doing good to others, being generous at, cost, at great cost to yourself. That's what it means. So I've used this analogy before, but it works. Uh, you know, you're, you have one sandwich and there's someone that's hungry and you're hungry, but there's one sandwich. I'm going to, it's not that I have two sandwiches or I got two burgers from Dick's and I've got one for you and one for me. No, we're actually going to trade places. I'm going to give up my provision, my blessing, so that you know what it means to be blessed and filled. And I'm going to take on your curse, your hunger. I'm going to know what it's like to go without a meal. That is Sadaqah Mishpat. I'm going to give it cost to myself, and that is where that's a big difference between social justice and the Bible's justice. It's not when we think of justice in our uh, culture, we think of um, equity, fairness, evensies. You should get the same amount as I get. You should get paid the same amount as I pay. And there's truth to that. 
But the Bible would go even further. It's not evensies. It's actually, I'm going I'm to take on poverty so that you can have wealth, so that you can have riches. That's the whole idea. So look what he says. This is what I want my leaders to do. He says, do justice and righteousness, sadaqah mishpat, deliver from the hand of the oppressor, him who has been robbed. <clears throat> Notice that he, do, do justice and righteousness, go to church, pray, lift your hands, eat the snacks, fellowship, go to home group. None of that. Look at this. Do justice and righteousness, deliver from the hand of the oppressor, him who has been robbed. In other words, care about that. And do something about it. Do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, that'd be immigrant, or the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, and there shall, uh, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who will sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house will become a desolation." Isaiah is another one. Isaiah opens up with this polemic against, against um, Israelite society. He says, when you spread your hands, this is God speaking through Isaiah, when you spread your hands, that's the idea is this, right? I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen, God is saying. Why? Here's what he tells you to do. He says, wash your hands, Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. <clears throat> Cease to do evil and learn to do good. What is good? What does that word mean? It's a big word. It's a packed word. He tells you. What is good to God? He keeps re- if you keep reading, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. That's God's, what God's got in mind here. And I could go, if I had time, I could go on and on and on. This is the, the major cry of God's heart that his people would be taking care of in his name the quartet of the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the fatherless, the immigrants, the poor. And God's heart is to draw such people closer to him, not to use them to keep people for our own gains, or to, keep, you know, to use people for our own gains. It, it is antithetical to who God is. <clears throat> and that's not even deep enough. Let me go into my second point, the deeper reason for corruption that this gives us. Now, simply saying that God sees and cares about injustice does not even scratch the surface. There's so much more. In the West, we tend to judge if a leader is good or bad based primarily on the things a leader does or does not do. Primarily, for the most part. What kind of systems do they put in place? Um, what kind of tax system do they have? Um, what are their policies that they're going to enact? What do they stand for and, and what, what benefits are they, going to, are they going to be able to put in place? What, part are they, what party are they a part of? In the West, though, a lead, for the most part, a leader's spiritual beliefs don't really factor into that equation, really. <clears throat> a, person's, a person's relationship with God is a private business and really has no bearing on, on how you're going to lead in the West. Um, if you're private, you can believe whatever you want, but the moment your private beliefs affect the public negatively by oppressing them or hurting them, then it becomes bad. But if you keep it to yourself, whatever you want to believe, wherever your, present, whatever your position is with God. Now, I need to tell you, this is a very new concept. The way we think in this culture is very new. It's an alien concept to the Bible. In the Bible, one's position with God is directly connected to the actions that they have, to, the way, to what we do, and especially to how we lead. To the Bible, systemic corruption and injustice is one of the most advanced symptoms of the heart that does not know God. Let me read that again. To the Bible, systemic corruption is a tell. It's a way to check the pulse of a society or a person. It is one of the most advanced symptoms of the heart that does not know God or that is as far east as possible. Remember our scale, our movement? <clears throat> 
So this is telling us where Israel is on the scale. They might be in the land, but they're as far east spiritually as they can get, and therefore this corruption is coming out of that. And how do I, let me, find, let me show you, just let me anchor this in our text. Verse 12, there's a major character statement to start all this out. Look at this. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. That's a character statement. The sons of Eli were worthless men, period. This is God giving us an insight into how he looks at these guys' hearts. They're worthless. They're good for nothing. They're of no use to his kingdom anymore. Why? It keeps going. Because they did not know the Lord. That's why. They were worthless as leaders and as people because they did not know the Lord. This is a major character statement. In other words, the reason for their corrupt leadership, the reason for their bad policies, the reason for the bad things that they do was that they were positionally as far away from God as possible and everything flows out of that. That's one thing that we miss here in the West when it comes to leadership structures. We focus on, well, if you just would have done this better, if this policy would have been better, if you would have enacted this better, oh, you did this and this hurt people, and oh, that's true, but the Bible will go further. The Bible will say, yeah, but why? But why? To the degree that we are, wherever we're at on that scale, west or east, to that degree, we, we end up being either more corrupt or less, less corrupt. Hophni and Phineas were simply, look, listen, <laughs> Hophni and Phineas were simply living an ethic consistent with their own heart's belief system. They were just living honestly from what they, where they were. Why did they treat the offering of the Lord with contempt? Because they regarded the Lord with contempt. So it just flowed. It was congruent. Why did they take from the people rather than give? Because if there is no God, then the only point of life is whatever you want it to be. We're not anchored. Our ethics cannot be anchored to anything solid or transcultural. They're unanchored to anything. This is just logical. Even um, Friedrich Nietzsche understood this. In his, uh, probably the most famous passage in the third book of The Joyful Wisdom, you know, have you heard the madman passage? Let me read it to you. This is Nietzsche just playing this out, and I'll explain it to you afterwards. He he tells the story. The madman, he says, Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran in the marketplace, and cried incessantly, I seek God! I seek God! As 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 many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, and he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? Them talking about God, they're mocking. Has he gotten lost? Asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? Asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Has he immigrated? They all yelled and laughed and jeered at this madman. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. How how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? Stick with that phrase. Put it in your mind. What were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Do we hear nothing as of yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decompose, he says. God is dead. That's the famous phrase that we remember it for. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. 
Now, the most famous part of that is the phrase, God is dead. And, and throughout history, people have used it basically to say this is Nietzsche's claim that we don't have any use for God anymore. And it certainly is, in and of itself, just kind of a matter-of-a-fact way of saying the idea of God is dead. He's not useful anymore. But it's much more than that. Um, he, this is basically a critis- a, 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 to criticize the Enlightenment movement. In the Enlightenment movement, the Enlightenment philosophers made it very popular that God is implausible and unnecessary, and yet society continued to live with a godlike Christian Judeo ethic. And this is Nietzsche's criticism against that. He's saying, be honest, Enlightenment philosophers. If God is dead, then we've unchained the earth from the sun. We don't, we have no right to say to anybody, you should live like this or you should live like that. Nietzsche's biggest um, propagation was not just that there is no God, but that there should be nothing metaphysical altogether. In other words, Enlightenment philosophers didn't have the courage to live out what they were saying, according to Nietzsche, and he's pointing out the logical ramifications of of what they're saying, that we've unchained the earth from the sun. In other words, why is Western society or modern society still living as though we're connected to anything metaphysical? If God is dead, then we have no basis in which to govern. To dispense with God is to destroy the very foundation on which the whole earth and metaphysics and morality is even constructed. There is no ethic that we can put on. It's make it up for yourself. Everyone's a law for themselves. This was a challenge to the the post-enlightenment era. Hey, if God is dead, then stop telling people that they should, stop talking about the family. Stop talking about uh, do's and do nots and all of those things. And of course, later this would morph and become even more scientific with Freud, with Darwin, with others, to where we are now. Hophni and Phineas are simply living out what they believe. They're being intellectually honest with their ethic. So in this way, In a way, Nietzsche and God are agreed. A lack of moral ethic and leadership shows how far humanity has come from the very essence and purpose of what it means to be human. Our influence on others, ethics, goes right to the heart of what it means to be human from a biblical perspective. Nietzsche, Hegel, um, Marx believe in a static human essence. They believed it dialectically changed um, through history, through struggle, through talking. Hegel believed we would have ideas and we'd banter those ideas back and forth and therefore the essence, the self-conscious of what it means to be a human could change, could constantly be changing, was constantly progressing and going forward. This was a major, uh, of course, and Marx came and made it political. He said, no, it's the material world that, dist- that, that, distinct- that distinguishes your self-conscious and changes that way. And he made it all a political materialistic system. But the same idea, except kind of turned on its head a little bit. This is a major departure from the Bible that believes there is something transcultural about your human nature. There's something that transcends history, transcends culture. There's something static and staying about you that will never change. And therefore, the more you depart from your essence of who you are, the more warped you become. The more turned in on yourself you become. And the more you start, the more everything starts to fall apart at that point. According to the Bible, man was created in God's image. What does that even mean? Well, a lot, but... I'm going to hone in on three things. (laughs) Let me read this to you. This is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. This is about us. This is about you. This is about me. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let us have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Because of time, I'll let you do this later. If you you look carefully at this passage, you'll notice um, that what it means to be the Imago Dei is at least that we're placed into three relationships. 
That's what it means to be human. One, man was made to be in a relationship with God. You can see that in verse 27a. Also, man was created to be in fellowship with man, with other humans. That's, you can find that in 27b. And a relationship with God is a, a relationship with God's creation, a, la- a relationship with nature, right? Those are, that's what it means. That's what makes us unique. That's what makes you different than any other creature. You were made to have a relationship, a Sabbath day, restful worship relationship with your creator. And from that flows out to your fellow humans. And from that flows out to creation care stewarding this beautiful place that we have that we've been that we've been given bringing everything every creature into the worship and harmony with God that's the great commission okay this traces all the way throughout scripture including to what we're finding as an elder board is becoming the motto of our church what Jesus said what are the what's the greatest commandment he said well I'll give you two one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength that means you're as human this is Christian anthropology, we're centered on God. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself and to be outward so it's an inward towards God so that we can be outward towards others. Calvary Wallingford, something like that. If you can think of a motto or a sentence that we can put on our website about that idea, we've been bantering it forth for a month or so, let us know. But that's the idea. We want to come here As a church, we want to make our movement west on Sundays and throughout the week with the help of each other. But we're always making a a step, even if it's one step or maybe a little baby step, west, closer into God's presence. To that degree, you will become healed. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll become healed with yourself. Psychologically, there'll be healing. Between you and God, of course, and then with your neighbors, with society, with your workplace, with your families. With everywhere that you go, you will, this, will, you, this will begin to spill out everywhere. That's the idea. It's what it means to be human. So to be human, according to the Bible, is to be directed toward God. Man is a creature who owes his existence to God, is completely dependent on God, and is primarily responsible to God. This is man's first and most important relationship. The other two relationships flow out of this one. This is basic to Christian. Augustine famously said, thou hast made us for thyself. This is in his confessions. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. John Calvin, all men are born to live to the end that they may know God. G.C. Burkauer, Scripture is concerned with man in his relationship to God in which he can never be seen as a man in himself or a man apart from God. In other words, the moment we move away from God is the moment we lose our humanity. To be human also means to be directed toward fellow humans. Notice the close juxtaposition in verse 27. The image of God, it says, in the image of God he created him. And male and female, he created them. Sexual differentiation is involved here, but much more than that. Since this uh, sexual differentiation is found in animals as well. The Bible doesn't call animals, uh, you know, imago Dei. What is being said here is that the human person is not an isolated being who is complete in himself or herself, but that he or she is, being, uh, is a being who needs the fellowship of others. We're not complete apart from each other. That's the idea. The moment we begin to isolate is the moment we begin to lose our humanity. And more for our purposes, mankind is called to bring all of creation into God's order. We're his, as Peter says, as Christians, Peter goes on to say, we are his holy nation, a kingdom of Hophni and Phineas's priests that's our job here's the here's the 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 zinger i guess you're all leaders every one of you biblical theology we're a kingdom of priests you're all called to influence we're all called to lead what are we called to do how do you lead first move west and then help bridge the gap help others Help others do the same. 
through how you love them, how you treat them, how you care for them, specifically how you care for the vulnerable quartet, the poor, the vulnerable. So this, there's this movement in the Bible. Um, this is, this is, let me read this to you because it's just, I just thought it was, it just jumped off the page and smacked me around a little bit. This is Isaiah speaking to Josiah's son. Josiah was a great king who had a son who was not a great king. And this is Isaiah's message to the not so great king. He says this, do you think you're a king because you live in cedar? And he goes, did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? In other words, your father was a good king, not because he lived in cedar, but because he did, there's our word, Sadakam Mishpat. He gave it great cost to himself. Then it was well with him. He judged, talking about his dad, he judged the cause of the poor and the needy. That's what made him a king. Then it was well, look at, is this not what it means to know me. That ripped my face off. In other words, God is saying, synonymous to knowing me is doing sadaka mishpat, judging the poor and the needy, caring about the people that are around you. That is the same thing. You cannot say you know me. And you... Some of you might have already gone there. Have you gone to Matthew 25 yet where Jesus is there at the end of the age? He shows this picture and there he is. He divides the sheep and the goats. Remember what Jesus says? How he decides who knows him? He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for you do not know me. And And he said, because when I was poor, you didn't help me. Or when I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. When I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat. When I was in prison, you didn't come and visit me. When I was naked, you didn't give me any clothes. That's how you know me. You care about these things. And they said, Lord, we don't remember that. He said, well, I'll tell you the truth. If you've not equals, if you've not done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've not done it to me. Is this not to know me? It's not what it means to know me. I'm not promoting some works-based salvation. I'm saying, like James will tell you, your faith will work. The more west that you're here, the more certain things you're going to become healed within yourself and you're going to fulfill what it means to be human. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, holy double cow. Third point, it's small. What's the solution? How does God weed out corruption when we're, all, when we're all corrupt? If you figured that out by now, we're all to a degree corrupt. Um, <clears throat> in our text here, two things happen. For one thing, did you notice that the text keeps moving back and forth? There, there's a scene and then pan to the other scene. There's the evil of Hophni and Phinehas and it describes that and then it goes to the boy Samuel growing up in the temple. Then it goes back to Hophni and Phinehas and they're doing all these corrupt, nasty things and then goes, but, but the boy Samuel was growing and learning in the Lord. Did you notice that? That's, that's a literary device, a literary function that's made to get you think that underneath all of this corruption and nastiness, God's doing something. He's bringing up this boy. God's, um, and think of this, by the way, in the middle of corruption, somehow Samuel was kept pure. You moms, it sounds so great when we think of Hannah, I dedicate Samuel to the Lord. And we think, oh, Lord, I dedicate my child to you. And that's true. But can you imagine? The rumors of Eli's house are widespread. Hannah, I think, probably knew what was going on there. She took her kid to a corrupt church and said, I'm trusting God with this kid. Even though you all are messed up. (laughs) Right? And there's all this corruption going on, and yet God is shielding Samuel. He's bringing him up, and through Samuel, um, 
And oh, by the way, and God, his mom gives him this robe. I just got to say this because I think a lot of you, if, if I'm going to nerd out on robe for a second because I, I, you know, I know a lot of you have nerd in you. This actually is way more, this robe that she made for him every year is way more significant than we might think at first blush. The robe in the ancient world is a sign of leadership, a sign of authority, and it becomes a major theme in the book of First and Second Samuel. It's a literary thing. It's the way the author is going to get you to think of a theme. So let me give you a few examples. Saul, the first king of Israel, will tear Samuel's adult robe. Remember that? He'll, uh, Samuel will turn away from him. Saul will say, don't go. And as Samuel leaves, his robe shh, tears, and Samuel whips around and says, the Lord is tearing the kingdom away from you. Tearing leadership away from you. Can't wait to get to that episode. It's a fun one. Jonathan will lay down his leadership to David by surrendering his princely robe to David. That's in chapter 18. David, remember David? Saul's looking for David. He goes into a cave to relieve himself. You know, he's going to the bathroom. David sneaks up and he cuts off a corner of Saul's what? Robe. He later regrets it and feels bad about it, but this, still, it means um, the, le- the kingdom, the leadership, the corruption is being taken from you and given to somebody else. And at the end of 1 Samuel, when Saul consults a medium to talk to the dead Samuel, remember that weird story? We'll get into all that when we get there. How does the medium, she's lo- this necromancer, she's looking into the spirit world and she sees a man and the way that, that Saul knows it's Samuel in the, in the spiritual realm is because she sees a man wearing a robe. The point is that, this is the, this, that, this, that the robe is a literary device to signify that God is raising up a leader in Samuel even in the midst of this corrupt environment. But secondly, <clears throat> look at these chilling, chilling words in verse 25. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. That's another way that God in this situation is going to weed out the corruption. He's going to kill them. He's going to kill them. In this story, God is going to kill these unrepentant priests. If we were to keep reading, we would read that, a man, that God sends a man of God. If we were to keep going, and I encourage you to do it, we're not going to cover it next week, but if you keep reading, you'll see that God sends a man of God to warn Eli and say, hey, God's, he's getting to the end of his patience here, man. You've got to rebuke your sons like more than what you've done. And it's very clear that God holds Eli culpable for his son's rebellion. He gives them chance after chance, and yet they still don't repent. As in the classic case, I don't know if you thought of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Very similar. Um, so is this instance where persistence in sin over time results in the inability to do otherwise. Persistence in sin over time hardens your heart to the point where one can no longer repent. Just like in Romans chapter 1, 24 through 28. He gives them over to the corruption in their hearts. In this story, God will execute justice by killing these criminals. Here's how the story works. In this story, God will execute justice by killing these criminals so that innocent Samuel can be brought to power and lead the nation back to Yahweh. Okay, but this doesn't really help, does it? Because all you have to do is keep reading. And if you keep reading far enough in the Bible, you will find that another corrupt leader will raise up in their place. And if you keep reading farther, you'll keep reading more corrupt leaders, even more corrupt than the guy before, will rise up in their place. The problem with, with a, a, an external fix like that is that corruption, as we've talked about, it resides in your heart. It resides in the human spirit. When we fell from God, we incurred this corruption throughout. We call it, theologians call it pervasive sin. It doesn't mean you're as bad as what you could be. It means sin has pervaded every area of you. It's touching every, every part of you. How, so how does the, the problem is, how do, we repl- how do we get to the human heart? 
Well, there's a line in here. I don't know if you caught it. There's a line in here that is copy and pasted into one of the gospel writer's narrative of the Jesus event. Did you guys catch that? uh, Well, verse 26. Now the boy Samuel, listen, continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Luke basically copy and paste that line to describe 12-year-old Jesus. Let me read it to you. Luke 2:52 says, "And Jesus, here it is, increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and with man." What's happening here? This is almost a copy and paste line. Luke is saying, when, I, when, I, when you think about Jesus as a 12-year-old, the story that I'm telling you of Jesus as a 12-year-old, I want it to spark your memory of Samuel being raised under a corrupt system, but God is raising up this leader. Both Jesus and Samuel were born in very corrupt times of Israel. Both were seen growing up under the leadership of Israel, and yet somehow miraculously were not corrupted by them. In the Jesus story, you see 12-year-old Jesus talking with the teachers and the scribes, the corrupt Pharisees and all of those people in the temple. He's talking with them and asking them questions, and yet he's unscathed. God's protecting him. Samuel was born to a woman who couldn't have children. Jesus was born to a woman who really shouldn't have had children. She was a teenager, not married. Both Samuel and Jesus were both in the time of very corrupt leadership of Israel. Both grew up right under the nose and were even influenced to a degree. They couldn't help it, and yet they remain miraculously undefiled by this corruption. Samuel was mentored by Eli. He had had dealings with Hophni and Phinehas all the time. He's like their adopted brother. See, Luke is pointing us to to the Samuel story to indicate that Jesus, like Samuel, there's about to be another regime change, but a regime change of the heart, not just the externals. How can you cleanse a corrupted heart? Well, there's a big, big difference in the Samuel story and the Jesus story. In the Samuel story, listen, It is the will of God, verse 25, it is the will of God to kill the corrupt leaders so a better leadership system in Samuel can be put in place. But in the Christ event, it is the will of God to kill the innocent one for the corrupt people. Let me read it to you this way. Isaiah 53 says it the best. You ready for this? Isaiah 53, prophesying of the Messiah. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He will of the Lord Lord prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. How do you change a wicked person's heart? Only through love. Only through dying for their punishment. And that's the idea. How are you cleansed from the corruption that's in your heart? By realizing that you're corrupt, first of all. And that somebody, instead of kill you like you deserved... It was the will of God for someone else to die in your place. Only that kind of sacrifice. Didn't didn't somebody in the Bible put it this way? Um, I think it was Jesus. You know, the love of a friend. No greater love exists than he who would lay down his life for his friends. That is a kind of sadaqah mishpat at giving it cost to yourself that can cleanse a heart, that can cleanse a soul. That is every Christian's testimony do you not understand that? If you don't have a general testimony like that, you're not a Christian. The testimony is, I was corrupt. I was evil. I was wrong. And instead of getting the punishment that I deserve for my corruption, someone took it for me, this evil person that didn't deserve it. How can I reconcile to a God like that without being completely in love with him and laying everything? He's won us over. That is our testimony. You've been won over by Christ in your heart. 
Now, if you don't recognize first that you're corrupt and you have an idea that, you know, I'm, sure, I'm a sinner, but I, I, you know, God must have saw some good in me and, you know, I'm trying my best here and all. You know, you have, you have a middle-class spirit. You have a, you have a spirit that is, that's basically saying, well, you know, I'm not up here, but I'm not down there. I'm pretty good and and that's why I go to church and all of those types of things. And listen, I'm telling you, that will corrupt you more. The Lord, you need to see that you've moved east, that you deserve what Hophni and Phidias got, but that someone took that for you only by doing that, only by coming to the table, only by realizing and letting that infect your heart, remembering what you deserve, that someone saved you, that will clean you. That'll clear you from pride. It'll clean you from looking down your nose at other people. It'll clean, you, it'll clean you from being judgmental with people that deal with things that you don't struggle with. It'll, all of those things that make us detestable to this world, we can't, we can't approach the world like that because we ourselves see. That's the only way to cleanse a heart. And that's the only way to go out from here, from the presence of God as leaders, into this world and help others apply the same balm to their souls and to their hearts to help them move west that's what it means to be a good leader this is leadership 101 and we're going to get into it because it's the theme's going to get more and more complicated in people like Saul and David very very more complicated but this is the basic this is we're calling this leadership 101 biblical leadership 101 okay let's do it let's cleanse our own hearts remind ourselves that we've been cleansed let's It's 12 o'clock. You're welcome.